and welcome to 13, the bi-weekly podcast that asks questions of Colgate community members. Today we have a special recording of a live YouTube conversation uh, that was conducted on March 31st with Dean of the College, Paul J. McLaughlin II. And Dean McLaughlin's gonna talk a little bit about residential life at Colgate and plans for the lower campus um, that are all part of the third century plan. I hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to the media studio in the basement of Lathrop Hall for another live conversation with a member of Colgate's leadership team. And today we are talking with Vice President and Dean of the College, Paul J. McLaughlin II. If you have not submitted a question or if you have additional questions, please send them to alumni at colgate.edu or feel free to send a message on Twitter at ColgateUniv or on Facebook. Dean McLaughlin came to Colgate in 2017 after spending the previous five years as Dean of Students at Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania. Prior to his time at Lafayette, McLaughlin held a series of positions at Harvard University starting as Assistant Director for Health and Medical Careers Counseling with the Office of Career Services in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and finishing as an Associate Dean of Harvard College and Senior Advisor to the Dean of Harvard College. Since arriving at Colgate, McLaughlin has worked to develop the Residential Commons Program, advancing goals connected to Colgate's third century plan while also working to enhance the student experience, integrating wellness and the university's diversity, equity, and inclusion goals. McLaughlin earned his bachelor's degree from Miami University in Ohio, where he majored in zoology and minored in neuroscience. He received his master's degree in higher education and student affairs administration from the University of Vermont, and he earned his PhD in higher education administration from Boston College. Dean McLaughlin, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the show. Thanks so much, Dan. All right. Um, I think it would be great if we can start things off today um, with you telling us a little bit more about your role here at Colgate. And I can add to that that we received a number of questions for you that were very much outside of what you do here. <laughs> so um, I think it would be great to explain what the dean of the college, um, what your role is at Colgate. All right. Thanks for that question. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, so I think of my job as uh, – maybe the senior student affairs officer, um, not worried about, but thinking about every day, the student's experience outside of the formal classroom with faculty. And I have a really awesome team of colleagues uh, that I work with across 20 plus departments uh, that help support students' development over their four years here. Really thinking from the very first day that they have deposited from May 1st, I sort of take the team that our admissions staff has, has generated and then think a lot about how to onboard those students all the way through, obviously, commencement day. Um, I did, with uh, anticipation of this question, what do you do? Uh, <laughs> I um, provided uh, a list of the departments that I oversee. And um, what I want to say about this is that this staff um, is an incredibly talented team who I think is the second part of my job, in addition to sort of thinking about students every day, I think about the staff that I lead and what is it that they need to do their jobs well, mm -hmm. whether that's a, res you know, a particular resource in, in terms of human resource or financial 
or in terms of the development they need, the support they need, because if they are well supported, then they can deliver really strong student services. And so these 20 departments, about 134 staff, I really see them as um, largely the people who are working day in and day out with students directly. I do have the opportunity to do that a little bit with students. Um, I'm in probably uh, too many meetings to have as much student contact as I would like, but uh, I really think that my job is really sort of thinking about the student experience and thinking about the staff experience who are thinking about the student experience. All right. Well, let's jump into some alumni questions, uh, and then I have a few questions of my own. All right. um, and most of those are based on conversations I've had at some recent alumni events, and people have asked about things, so I've tried to formulate those. Um, so the first question we have is from Mr. Edward Evert Vale, uh, a member of the class of 1962 from Malibu, California. And he asks, how can you make Colgate more visible nationally? It's a great question. Uh, thanks, uh, Edward. And um, it is all about now in the season where we are envying Malibu weather. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the sun is coming, but it isn't quite here yet. Uh, and I think what I would say is um, that this is definitely not something I can do alone. But I, I do think it is about coming back to my the answer to my last question. It's about certainly producing students who go into the world prepared to lead to make an influence on others, uh, and to obviously then represent the Colgate brand, the education that they've received that has made them this dynamic individual who is committed civically as a leader in whatever industry or profession they're doing. I mean, that's the, that's the big one. Like, if I think about what I'm doing, I'm producing leaders, and that's probably the very best way we can have visibility of the Colgate brand. On the smallest of ways, I never travel on an airplane or a train without a Colgate-branded piece of merchandise, <laughs> right? And it's amazing how that Colgate hello comes to life mm. in those trips. Mm -hmm. it, uh, if I'm walking back an, air, uh, an airplane to find my seat, it, it would be unusual if someone didn't say, you know, raise their hand and point to me or something, you know, or wave. And I think that sort of embodies that Colgate hello that happens here. Yeah. People really love this brand. They love this. Um, and I'm guessing that not only does the person who has seen the Colgate brand, they're all of those other people who do. So I had the chance to travel over the last month um, a couple of times when our uh, – teams were playing in the NCAA. And so people are seeing Colgate. I'm assuming there were some people on those planes that were in a bracket. <laughs> and, uh, and they noticed the Colgate brand and said something to me. So the, the good thing is that um, the Colgate brand is known very positively, uh, I think. And um, all we can do, and I think that we're doing it really well when we know that our applications are up 146% over the last three years, um, our selectivity now just under 11 percent. It, it's clear that people know who we are and are really excited about what we offer. And I think that we'll continue on that trajectory by continuing to produce these dynamic graduates. Hmm. Our second question comes from an alumnus from Chicago, Illinois, who has a student currently enrolled at Colgate. And as such, they wish to remain anonymous. <laughs> um, they ask... Quote, I'm curious to hear what Colgate is doing to make the campus more inclusive socially. And um, they continue in that vein, referring to sophomore fraternity Rush, stating, from what I've seen, it has only increased the social pressure for first year students. Houses are extending social invitation to first years, but in a seemingly haphazard manner that seems exclusionary. 
Yeah, that's um, um, it's a great question, and thank you from for whoever asked that. Um, these are conversations that I've had with parents and students actually about um, how do you find um, your people at Colgate, and particularly for first year students, that is a challenge. Yeah. Um, particularly as we have become more diverse, we now have people who are coming to Colgate from all over the world and um, geographic representation domestically, and I think that. The more diversity we have, um, it has been a challenge to find your people naturally, particularly if your people may not actually be the most socially gregarious people. So I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, um, um, I hope, about the residential commons yes. program and the way we're thinking about the junior and senior experience. So I'm going to save some of my comments, but when I answer and talk about that, it is actually very much in support of student social life. And... I think for all first-year students on any college or university campus, finding a sense of belonging is a challenge, and it is what we work on from the start to f help students find that belonging as quickly as possible through robust orientation programs, pre-orientation programs, summer engagement, and then even into the first month of classes through a series of programs we call Welcome Weeks. Hmm. These are events and programs, things on the weekend, nights, to really try to bring students out of their rooms and into spaces where they can interact with one another. These high school um, seniors, juniors, and sophomores have had a really different experience as a result of COVID and the right. pandemic. And I do think that has made our job even harder than it has always been. I mean, orientation is one of the most important programs you can ever oversee on a college campus because it is the foundation on which everything else is really built. If students have a strong orientation experience, chances of academic success and student success from that point forward are highly correlated. And so that first six weeks is essential. It's become even more critical now when we have students who are entering with a very different social experience in high school than their predecessors. And so... I do think um, this particular question I know is around the university's decision to create um, a first-year experience that's devoid of fraternity and sorority affiliation and really have students choose an affiliation in the sophomore year or later. They could choose it in their junior year, too, if they wanted. And um, that's a long-standing decision, not a, a new one. And I think that is in support of what I just said. It is recognizing that we want students, this diverse class of people that we've assembled in a, in, a, in a class of 805, to get to know one another, to meet one another before they begin to break off into these smaller organizations, these smaller affiliations, where potentially then their influence and circle of influence gets increasingly smaller very fast. Mm. So we keep the first year class open, if you will, through a series of four, you know, four residential commons, yeah, 150 student organizations and club sports, and all of those things are helping students find a sense of belonging and people. But we think from the fraternity and sorority space, particularly because you don't live in your chapter house at the earliest until your junior year, that we think it's important for that first year to sort of not be uh, a part of the fraternity and sorority system. Um, this um, parent also sort of talks about this uh, fraternities and sororities extending social invitations in what seems like an exclusionary manner. It is true that fraternities and sorority events, by their national affiliation, must have private events. They can't be open to everyone. Um, 
And be- because sometimes they're serving alcohol, they're in their chapter house because of liability, et cetera, they do have to create a guest list for an event. Um, I wish it wasn't described as haphazard, but that seems like if that's what it feels like to students, something we should look at. Mm. Um, it's a it's a tough thing, I think. Um, again, with with such a diversity and such a desire, so quickly to meet people who you naturally gravitate towards or who you can affil- you know affiliate or have affinity to, it can be challenging even on a very small campus like ours. Mm-hmm. But I think that is why we have built some structures like the residential common systems. I'm going to talk a little bit about our living learning workshops uh, a little bit this morning or this afternoon too. Um, but it is a, a great question, and I, I think that is why we we focus on large events that are open to the entire campus, a number of student organizations, orientation events, and things like that to try to help students have a strong social experience from the start. We have another question here. This is uh, from Kenneth Gross, uh, MD, a member mm-hmm. of the class of 1974 from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Now, his question is probably more appropriate for when I'll be talking about athletics in a mm. future episode. Um, however, I thought it would be appropriate to talk with you about um, the impact of Division One athletics at Colgate and how that impacts the student experience. Um, hugely, uh, I would say. I've always had the benefit of um, working on a college campus with Division One athletics. And um, I think that was pretty intentionally. I think that there is something remarkably, um, again, coming back to the question I just answered, uh, something remarkable about a Division One sports bringing students together. Mm. And yes, that's it's a little easier to do when you have four or five teams who are playing in NCAA tournaments. Like there's a lot of excitement being in the arena on a night with sold out and there are all of the, you know, all of those people in there. Those are creating shared experiences. And um, for those who are really familiar with the third century plan, one of the ways we we work to deepen the student experience is through ritual, tradition, and pride. Mm. Pride in Colgate, a sense of tradition and ritual. Ritual certainly being playoffs and football game Saturdays and basketball and field hockey. And, and, and I love that we have these really strong programs that can offer an opportunity for you to go watch your roommate play, mm-hmm. something that's really important to them, or to bring a floor together and go see a soccer game on a fall night as the sun has set and you're under the lights. There's just something really meaningful about that. But the other way I would answer this question um, from Dr. Gross is that having 22% of our students as Division I athletes helps set a really strong example around time management mm. management for the other 78%, right? Like these are students who are really strong in the classroom, who are scholar athletes by and large, I mean like really, and have to figure out how to balance those rigorous academic commitments with a really competitive Division I sport. And to have that in the milieu, I think in many ways is has this effect on other students too. And even if you're not a Division I athlete, you probably friends with one or classmates right. with one. Um, and I think that there's something about that that also helps transform Colgate in a really positive way. 
So I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Okay. And um, I know one of the areas you've been thinking a lot about recently is the future of Colgate's lower campus. And that's the area along Broad Street, which includes fraternities and sororities and affinity housing. Um, I guess, you know, if you a little further back, you have like Parker Commons and down the road, the townhouses, things like that. <laughs> um what should folks expect in terms of changes in that area? Because redevelopment of the lower campus is one of those big pillars on the uh, third yeah. century plan. So curious as to um, what you see for the future down there. Okay. First thing I have to say is you know our um, our inventory quite well. So if the communications gig doesn't work out, there's a, there's a role for you in the DSC. Um, so we do have a we have 39 residence halls and we have a hugely um, a huge variety in our inventory and I think that over the years at Colgate there have been um, c- clearly our residentiality is foundational to who we are we're four year residential college everyone lives in residence save for uh, you know about 30 percent of the senior class who live in private village housing in their senior year we I think have an opportunity in front of us now to really reimagine the way students live in residence and that how that residentiality helps deepen their student experience and the education they receive. So in 2014, you know, we really worked on uh, up the hill, and I'll come back to that later on, on the residential commons. And, you know, that is taken off. It's still a nascent program. It's not even 10 years old, but there's a lot of really good momentum there. Your question really is thinking about the lower campus, and that has always been the other side of this. Mm -hmm. It's sort of the two, what I refer to as the two plus two residential experience, two years up the hill, two years down the hill. And the fact that our uh, residents' inventory is to I'm going to have trouble saying topography, (laughs) topographically (laughs) oriented does allow us to sort of have a more robust junior and senior year experience that, again, brings students together. So it is important developmentally for students to have a sense of sort of class identity and commons identity up the hill in their first couple of years. Then as they begin to find their people, to my earlier question, they begin to find the groups and the people that they want to live with, they should have that option to do that, mm. right? So they're going to live in special interest communities, Greek letter communities, Uh, There are groups of students who live together with with no other interest than each other, and that is all really important. But if you move down the hill and that experience is so disparate and there aren't opportunities to to come together around a sense of shared ritual, tradition, and pride, Mm -hmm. then we we are losing out on opportunities for students to learn about themselves and learn about one another through where they live which again is foundational who we are. So we've been thinking a lot about the lower campus. Now, surely part of that is this is um, an opportunity to fix a lot of the deferred maintenance we have along lower campus and along the Broad Street corridor. But you're right, Parker Apartments, University Courts, Newell Apartments, and the townhouse is all part of that too. And thinking about that um, initially as an opportunity to address and just renovate those places has now turned into a much more exciting and transformative vision about really imagining what it would take to create a program that allows students to have that sense of developmental affinity to people they want to live with, but also opportunities to come together across those groups in shared spaces. Mm -hmm. So um, 
I'm going to uh, have you take a look at an image here um, that gives you a sense of the lower campus today. And I talked about on the left side of the screen, you, you sort of see up the hill, and I'll come back to that later. But what I'm really focused on here is on the right side um, of the screen and this entire sort of separate physical identity in the junior-senior experience. And we want this to be one residential experience that's developmental, as I said. So as we focus on this sort of lower campus um, inventory, I want us to think about not only the current sort of 17 properties that you see here, starting on the lower right-hand screen, which is 66 Broad Street, or the current chapter house for Delta Upsilon, yeah. stretching all the way south down towards the hospital and ending with Asia House at 118 Broad. This is what it looks like today. Yeah. And so you see this sort of beautiful kind of um, set of houses built between 1853 and 1953. And what we want to do is go from this to this which is really imagining a stronger density to this lower campus with a second row of mm. housing called the West Row, uh, a renovation of all of the properties on the front, but also the creation of a couple new houses on Broad Street. You probably don't notice that, but we're sort of filling in the missing teeth, if you will, yeah. as we go down, creating a strong back row identity with new residential quadrangles, new outdoor spaces where today are just parking lots. And we also create not only uh, more residences in this place, we also create a new social center, which is in the center of this uh, sort of precinct, and also a new study, um, which we kind of think will take some pressure off the current library, but also give an opportunity for students to come out of their residence halls and all of their GLOs and their special interest communities and study in spaces and eat in spaces together. So this becomes now a much more vibrant junior and senior year experience as a corollary to that first two-year experience up the hill. Hmm. Uh, so it's a really exciting opportunity for us. It will result in some buildings today being knocked down and replaced with new ones. Obviously, a lot of new construction over the next decade. Um, we'll begin this project in earnest uh, next May with two renovations and then begin to sort of march our way as we sort of renovate some on the front row. We begin to build some new residences and townhouses on the back row. This is a big Lift. So we started this in 2019, looking at the third century residential plan, and we have been working ever since to really flush out what that program would look like, and then how does that program materialize in architectural expressions, mm -hmm. uh, ex architectural, architectural expressions that really reflect who Colgate is, and like the new residence halls that we've built up the hill that look like they've been there forever, yeah. we are taking the same approach down the hill as well. And then long-term, we will replace things like university courts. Um, we will do a facelift and a renovation of Parker Apartments. Newell Apartments will eventually come down at a certain point because we'll have had plenty of new housing along that West Row. And what we'll do is we'll maintain the variety that students see today. Special interest communities, single rooms, uh, townhouses, all of the variety that students have today in terms of living that is developmentally appropriate will remain. What we're doing, though, is also addressing some of the ways in which lower campus is not meeting contemporary student needs. So, for instance, today about 21% of our students live in singles, which is really small for uh, places like us. And on the other end of the third century sort of uh, lower campus plan, so in a decade, we will have 100% of our seniors in singles oh, wow. with full beds 
and about 40% of our juniors will have the opportunity to live in singles through the lottery. That's a massive difference. We'll still maintain doubles largely up the hill because developmentally that's appropriate. But as they move towards graduation and prepare for postgraduate life, they should be living in more developmentally appropriate singles or at least a full bed. Students have already kind of marched with their feet on that already by converting their twins to doubles. Um, but that's the way in which we are thinking not only about what they look like outside, but what is happening inside to create the kind of student experience that we want students to have. Is that a national trend, the, the move towards singles for juniors and seniors? It has been one <laughs> for quite a while. I think that the, the piece that I would say to kind of address that, to, but to also give you a sense of why this is such a transformative plan, um, Colgate acquired these properties in the two early 2000s, and they acquired them. They were, of course, owned by fraternity and sorority alumni corporations. Colgate didn't build them. And so the variety among those chapter houses yeah. is really big yeah. because Colgate didn't build them some standard. And as a result, they haven't really been changed since when they were built, maybe modest renovations here and there. But instead of thinking about renovating 14 or 17 properties, we've really thought about the entire precinct rather than one by one by one. Yeah. What would we do if we could create a new neighborhood? And and that's what you see, I think, is this sense of this isn't a renovation plan. This is a transformative opportunity to really enrich the junior and senior residential experience and make Colgate truly distinctive. So while we may be catching up on this on the single piece vis-a-vis -vis our peers, what we're offering in terms of a residential experience for juniors and seniors, I think is truly distinctive. Hmm. Um, I think, are there some extra slides that we have, Brian, in the back there of some of the other um, the other views of the lower campus of what it may become? I know they're early renderings, but. Yes. Okay. So that's sort of looking at the West Row that I just, you know, sort of highlighting, if you will, that West West Row. And I guess what I would say, since we have a few more audio or visuals here, is you can see a really strong footpath going down the middle now, um, starting right there in front of DU. Mm -hmm. And that creates this new pedestrian corridor. Today, what we hear is that if you live along lower campus, it feels like your home. But if you don't live along Lugger campus, walking down in front of those buildings can sometimes feel like you're on display and maybe you don't fit there or belong. So back to some of my earlier questions about sense of inclusion and belonging, this is a DEI plan. Huh. It's a residential life plan, but it is about making all upper-class students feel that they have a home and that that home is actually together with other students and that as they walk on lower campus, it's theirs. And so there are some students for years at Colgate for our, in, in our 200-year history who have called Broad Street their home. They have loved it. When I talk with alums, it's so clear that their experience along Broad Street in a GLO was magical in so many ways. And they will regale you with stories for as long yes. as you'll listen. I love them. And what's interesting to me is that this gives an opportunity to give all upper-class students what some upper-class students to have today. So this is an additive plan. We, we, we continue to support fraternities and sororities that are on this row. We renovate their houses completely. 
we then add additional residences, a new social space. So to this slide here, to the right, is the new study. Looking down a little bit into the middle, you see the, the sort of jut out there is right in the middle of the new social center, which includes a gastro pub and a new market, a new coffee uh, spot. Um, and what that means is, again, today you have Greek letter organizations largely having to fill in the social experience for students because they have access to the space. They have party space. They have opportunities to, to use space to bring people together. What we're doing with this is providing more of those social spaces for more groups to have more events. Gotcha. That's, in, that's inclusion. It doesn't mean that we're in any way taking away the opportunity for Greek letter organizations to continue to social host. But we know that that puts an undue burden on them to actually have to carry the full load of a social scene on a weekend. This will allow more people to do that and create some large social spaces for people to come together, not in groups of 200, but maybe larger than that. Hmm. And can you give a little perspective here? So that yes. study on the right-hand side, where is the, what is in front of it if you were so, to go oh, to the So left? the left of this screen, this sort of off, are all of the existing Broad Street houses today and everything to the right is a new west row. So we're looking south towards Payne Brook okay. and, and in the distance would be 110 Broad Street or the former uh, Deke House. Um, and so that social center is sort of right in the middle. Um, and in fact, maybe if you could advance one more, I might actually be able to show you now looking north Okay. So on the right-hand side of the screen is the current Phi Kappa Tau house, totally oh, so, renovated. So this is like standing on Broad Street. This is actually not. This is no. standing on a new Payne Brook, so a new water oh, feature. I see. So the Broad Street would be to your right off the screen. I got you. And Phi Kappa Tau, that should look a little familiar to you. That's there today at 92 Broad Street. That's fully renovated, but everything to the left of this is new. New townhouses, new social space, new study. Hmm. Um and, and a new green space, which is really great because we're going to expand the current Payne Creek. Uh, and really, in a way, what you'll see is Taylor Lake now in some ways moves across Broad Street and becomes sort of another water feature hmm. that students can hang out. There's a fire pit in this area. So again, spaces aren't necessarily always inside residence halls, but residence halls have this wonderful opportunity to bring people together across all sorts of backgrounds. Now we have to create an experience and spaces for them to interact with one another. I imagine there's a lot of engineering work that needs to be done ahead of this <laughs> construction as well. That may be the understatement of this <laughs> webinar. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, let's let's move on to another question here. Um, so, what other additions can the community expect from this future re-envisioning of the lower campus? And I'm specifically thinking more along the lines of the College Street apartments and the townhouses, and yeah. townhouses in particular being kind of so far away from that center. Yeah. So we haven't. Re I mean, this this plan, as I've mentioned, will probably take us ten years. We'll we'll start next summer, and and at least we'll begin with two. Um, Residence is 66 Broad Street, which is DU, and 70 Broad Street, which is the current special interest group called The Lodge, which is our sort of outdoor uh, club, uh, about 12 students. And those two begin, but then as we continue all the way down, you know, we'll be doing this for a while as we also, as you just mentioned, regrading the back, uh, you know, new sewer lines, water lines, power lines, all of those things, all underground to feed that sort of West Row. In the end, we so 
the first part I would say is the townhouses are an incredible gift to us. Kind of funny. I would never think I would have said that when I got here <laughs> because the townhouses, as you say, are far from further from campus than is ideal. Yeah. But they are a true gift to the university in this moment because they will serve as flex housing. Mm. So as we take buildings offline for gut renovations, full renovations, we will then be able to have those communities in flex housing. And then when they're f renovated, they'll go back and we'll continue to do this for some time. And then at the very end of this project, what we do with the townhouses is, I don't know yet exactly. There are some options. We could convert those current house housing from doubles into singles. And I think it would be a really attractive place for seniors. I think we could turn it into faculty and staff housing, which is something we desperately need True. in the village. Yeah. It's kind of so far at 10 years from now, um, I don't know that I'll be the one making that decision. Uh, and so, but I certainly know that right now it's an incredible asset to us. And so that's what we'll do um, is use it in that way and then think about it. In terms of the townhouses, one of the things that is exciting about that them is that students like to live in groups. I think 16 is too big of a group of people. They some, it's sort of so many students that there isn't as much accountability about who's actually going to clean the kitchen that day. <laughs> sort of feels like it could be any of the other 15, but not you. Sure. And so no one does. And so as we think about townhouses, we're going to maintain townhouses in the form of that West Row. Many of those West Row apartments, even though you don't see it on the outside, it looks like one house. Mm -hmm. Inside are actually townhouses of six and eight people. Oh. We think that's actually a much better size where there's still accountability, but an opportunity with internal social spaces, smaller social spaces that you control with a kitchen and your own bathroom, et cetera. And so townhouses as a model will remain, even if townhouses of today that we know of down 12B don't remain. And then in terms of university courts, those will also come offline. They still have some useful life to them, but they're probably not architecturally worth saving long-term, yeah. and they will be replaced by new buildings. Parker Apartments actually will remain in our current plan. They'll have a facelift. They'll get fully renovated. They will look different on the outside, but the actual structure themselves are really good. We will replace Parker Commons, which is the commons that sits in the middle. That will go down, and a new common space will be created in its place. All right. Um, can you talk a little bit about the Office of Residential Life and how it's changed since you came to Colgate? Um, and specifically, and you mentioned this earlier, uh, about how the residential common system has evolved through the years uh, and what you see for that program in the near future. Sure. Um, it does feel like I oversee residential life <laughs> based on the number of questions we've got. But it is such an important component. Um, I say that mostly to all of my other colleagues who are, are doing great work in the DOC too. Uh, residential life for the first two years, again, I think it is different today. When I got here, there were still sophomores living in the townhouses, roughly, I don't know, what is that, a third of the mile down the street or so. Today, we only have first and second year students up the hill and um, townhouses for juniors and seniors. Developmentally, that makes a lot more sense. We should have first and second years around the academic core and around one another mm -hmm. um, to an all-you-care-to-eat dining hall, two of those, right? That, that does feel totally appropriate for a group of people who are trying to find their place at Colgate and trying to find each other. So that's one thing. We... We also made another change uh, shortly after I arrived. Um, students don't select their roommates at Colgate. 
they had always selected roommates. But I felt like when I got to orientation on that first day or two of orientation, I felt like I could see almost about half of the class who just seemed to be a little more confident here about their experience and about another half of the class that didn't. And sure enough, about 50% of students were choosing their own roommates or more. I think what we do by having our team take a look at a housing preferences form, which is pretty long, and we ask a lot of questions, and then hand-matching those students is a way to ensure that students are benefiting from the diversity of the class we've assembled, rather than perhaps just choosing a roommate that they know or met on Facebook or knew from their high school or down the street. And so that feels to me like a really um, a deepening of the commitments we have to DEI. And um, those are sort of some maybe some structural things. The other piece, of course, is the creation of the residential commons. So in 2015, we began with two commons. By 2017, we have all four. So here on your screen to the left, what we see are four residential commons, Brown, Chaconi, Dark Colgrove, and Hancock commons. Okay. Interestingly, give me an opportunity to tell you that we will have five residential commons within the next five years. We will replace Gatehouse. So Gatehouse is in the left side of your screen. Some of you know that if you've been here the last 25 years or so <laughs> when that temporary housing was put up. Um, that will come down in a new residential commons will be formed with our first residence hall in that new quadrangle called Fox Hall as a gift thanks to the Fox family. And um, that will mean that each of the five commons has roughly about 150 students of the first year class in it. Okay. And then they live with sophomores who are also in the same proportionality, about one in five uh, of the classes in a commons. So these are small little two to 300-ish they're a little different based on their size, but but largely we're trying to create five smaller communities to give students, again, a little bit of a chance to get to know each other. The other thing that we have done, now this is more in the last couple of years, is we house students in their first year according to their first year seminar. So everybody in a seminar is living together on the same floor or over a couple of floors. Let's say a floor is all men. Uh, male-identified students, then it might be over two floors. Okay. But your commons and your uh, assignment and your seminar are all linked. And that's a really wonderful way to actually have students express thoughts and ideas outside of the classroom where they live, which is exactly what living learning communities were always designed to do. Hmm. And starting next fall, I'll talk about a little bit later, the Living Learning Workshops, a new component of Colgate's core curriculum will be in effect. And students will have four different workshops together across the first uh, semester. So these are some of the ways that I think, um, um, if you can come back to that last slide, one of the things I want to show you here is on the left-hand side, you see Burke and Pension Hall. Yep. On the left, there are newest residence halls. Um, and... Uh, on the right-hand side, you see a new rendering um, of the new Fifth Commons. So Alana Cultural Center is there. Sort of, icon You can kind of see the architecture of the Alana Cultural Center with the Ho Science Center to the right. To the left of the screen, you see the new gatehouse replacement, if you will, and the coop. So um, one of the things that maybe I'd point out here is that part of our transformation up the hill is linking residential commons to green spaces 
to outdoor spaces that they control. So once we have five commons, the configuration of the buildings will actually change a bit so that they are wrapping around a shared green space that I think also is really important. So Burke and Pynchon today are in two separate commons. Ah. When the fifth commons is up, Burke and Pynchon become their own commons shared around this beautiful uh, oval. Nice. Makes sense yeah. to have that gathering space for the it commons does. members. Yeah, and and I think it'll be more intuitive mm-hmm. to students about which buildings comprise a commons. Uh, maybe perhaps more intuitive than today's configuration. Hmm. And then Andrew Stillman, East and West, for instance, become their own. Yeah. All right. So another area that falls under your purview is Colgate's Counseling Center. Um, the topic of student mental health has been at the forefront of the national conversation in recent years, and particularly in the wake of student isolation um, following the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, how has Colgate changed its support uh, for students' mental health? Um, and I guess what is being done to make sure our students, I guess, have those resources available to them? Yeah, really great question. And as you said, it's a topic of great concern to us. Um, the rise in mental health uh, needs and services, I think, were starting pre-pandemic. Lots of debate if you read in the news today whether or not the pandemic is the the reason why there are so many mental health concerns among college-age students or whether it just – Is it just that it was already going to happen regardless? I think it's probably a little bit of both. Whenever you try to think it's one or the other, it almost never is. Um, We were starting the strong work that we've done to support students' mental health before the pandemic, and we are really grateful we had done that because they were really called upon during the pandemic. So we had increased the size of the counseling center. We had rethought the way in which students could access their counselors Um, So every day, all day, there are walk-in hours. Students can just walk in and see any counselor. Now, they can also see their counselor if they've got a counselor that they want to see. That may not be same day, um, but they can always see a counselor. We also had put into place after-hours counseling 24-7. That had always been the case. Counselors on our staff, our full-time counselors, would rotate an after-hours phone and they would take after-hours counseling. But we started to see the number of students who were looking for after-hours counseling rise. And Dr. LaFrance and I, who is our director, assistant vice president and director of the Counseling Center, had already started to think about that wasn't probably a sustainable model, to have counselors woken up at 2 in the morning doing counseling and then back in the office that morning for a full caseload. So we actually contracted with a third-party provider called Protocol, and these are trained counselors who that is their job. They are working after hours and then giving a detailed report or summary to our counselors the next morning of that call. Now, our counselors still have an on-call phone and can get woken up in the night if they need to for some of the more serious concerns. But we do have this wonderful service. And then probably more recently, um, in the last two years, we've contracted with another agency called Mantra Health. We've seen an increase in the number of students who are requiring psychiatry of some sort, either for medication management or really acute mental health issues um, that have uh, needs beyond what our licensed clinical therapist or our student health services staff can really provide. And so we now have an automatic referral agency that we work with to actually do this work. Um, The team in the Counseling Center are, um, I think, also recognizing 
that not every student has the same propensity to access counseling as another based on their culture, their background, their familiarity with counseling. And as a result, we see more of our counselors doing satellite hours where they're in the they're, they're spending some of their hours each week in the athletic spaces or in the Alana Cultural Center or out and about campus so that they aren't all just in Conan House. Mm. Wanting to be more visible, wanting to again, create a little more access for those students who may be reluctant to seek counseling. Thankfully, this generation of students increasingly is more receptive to counseling. And um, some of that is actually peer-to-peer through our wellness ambassadors, through the Shaw Wellness Institute. Not everything also needs a licensed clinical therapist. Um, And it can just be somebody who needs a little encouragement about how to get started on a paper or a long assignment or something. So um, I think we've done a really good job in this area. Um, We don't have a wait list, despite sometimes what I think students think, because if they want to see a particular counselor on Tuesday afternoon between 2 and 5, that can feel frustrating when they can't see Dan DeVries at 3 on Tuesdays. (laughs) But they can always see a counselor at 2 or 3 p.m. on a Tuesday. And so I think that there is always re-education that needs to happen. There's probably nothing worse than people thinking there's a wait list when there isn't, because then that might mean that a student who who hears there's a wait list wouldn't go. And so um, our team has done a really good job, again, of of showing that they are accessible, um, trying to put a face with a name, trying to sort of make sure that there is less mystery around who these counselors are. Um, And the last thing I guess I would say is that we've done a really good job of trying to ensure that our counseling staff is reflective of the student body um, racially, socioeconomically, LGBTQ, all of those issues, because it's important for students to know that there are staff, either that they will see that counselor or that that staff just generally is going to be understanding of their needs uh, and their backgrounds and their culture. That is a good segue into Mm. our final question here because we are running out of time. Um, But we often get questions about Colgate's diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. And uh, I was wondering if you could talk for a little bit about the various offices within the dean of the college division um, that are working to support students from a wide range of racial, ethnic, socioeconomic backgrounds and I guess how, how those offices help. Yeah, sure. Um, so the, the ones that would come top of mind for me would be LGBTQ uh, initiatives, our Alana Cultural Center, our first at Colgate, which supports our, our first generation college students, um, which, by the way, has grown significantly since I've been here. I mean, we have roughly 10, a little over 10 percent of the first year class. Uh, and then the fourth one would be the Office of International Student Services. Again, another 10 percent of our class. So those are the four sort of offices. But what I would maybe want to say is that we would be falling short of what our responsibility is to supporting students if all of the DEI efforts were in four offices out of 23. <laughs> so this is work that the Office of Campus Safety is yeah. committed to through uh, training and in-services. Uh, it is our work that our COVE is doing about how they were supporting communities within the village and the surrounding com- you know, Madison area, County area. Uh, I would say unequivocally that every single department in the DOC is committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And one of the ways that we do this is thinking about what, first of all, what is it that we want for all students in terms of a set of what we call learning outcomes? It's a little jargony, but what, what is it that we want for first year or second year students to have learned or to be able to do? Um, talk, talk 
through a difficult conversation with a roommate mm. or um, understand and appreciate cultural differences or, I don't know, just manage their time. And that set of first and second year learning outcomes is something we have created across the DOC. And the expression of how an office helps a student learn that outcome is dependent on the work they're doing, mm. right? So Alana is working on the same set of first-year outcomes as our administrative deans. Once we have that sort of shared vision and, and purpose about our educational role, then we can start to see where there may be gaps, equity gaps, and who isn't accessing those services. Or are there students who aren't learning those outcomes? And what do we need to do to address those inequities? Mm. Is there something more, again, like getting counselors out of their office to be able to, to, to be seen by students? So I think having a sense of purpose around DEI together, and so every staff member has to think about those in their work, and then also making sure that we are mindful of our equity, equity gaps. But the last thing I have to say on this front, there's always more work we need to be doing in the DEI space. We have more diverse class than we have ever had, and I feel like I say that every year because it's true. As we have more students here from different backgrounds, we then have to work to support them, and we need to make sure that students are learning from one another. Dee McLaughlin, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, this was welcome. really great. Tell your friends and family about the podcast. If you have any questions, please send them along to 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13 the number. And until next time, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications and Events. Episodes are recorded on campus in Lathrop Hall. Executive producer, Colgate Vice President for Communications and Events, L. Hazel Jack. Producer and host, Dan DeVries. And audio production by Brian Ness. Learn about all the happenings at Colgate at colgate.edu, colgatemagazine.com, and colgateresearchmagazine.com.